Again, it's good to see you this morning. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel and uh, in the third chapter. And I'm going to really read the uh, first 16 verses, actually. These verses lead us up to John 3.16, obviously, probably the most famous verse uh, in the Bible, but that verse is actually not going to be necessarily the focus of our message today. But... Um, we're really going to be focusing on Nicodemus and his quandary. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, it's the same term in Greek, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We here bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how could you believe if I told you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you read the last verse with me together out loud, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Father, I ask you now that you'd make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon is really the message of the sermon. This is all about Nicodemus and his quandary. He was in a quandary. I mean, he was puzzled. He's puzzled about Jesus, which is why he goes to Jesus. But the thing is, and I hope you may have picked it up, let's underscore it right here. Pharisees were not supposed to be in quandaries. That wasn't what Pharisees were in. Pharisees had the answers, and Pharisees had the questions. That's to say that Pharisees were the experts on religion and life, and Pharisees were the interrogators of those who disagreed with them and ran afoul of them. Pharisees did not have quandaries. You can see this back in John 1.19. You get a taste of it when 
when the Pharisees sent a group to John the Baptist to talk to him. And, and, and undoubtedly it was during the day. Undoubtedly it was in public. Of course it was very ostentatious. If you read those verses and you just take the questions out of those verses 19 to 22, you see there was a, a whole staccato interrogation of four questions that are recorded. Four or five questions that were recorded. First, who are you? Then are you Elijah? Then are you the prophet? And when he denied those things, then it was again, who are you? What do you say about yourself? That was a Pharisee. They had the answers and they had questions. But they weren't in quandaries. And make no mistake about it this morning. I don't know what you think of Nicodemus from your past reading, but Nicodemus was one of them. John introduces him to us as a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of of the Jews. And in fact, when he begins to speak to Jesus in verse, verse 2, he begins in the first person, first person plural. He begins, Rabbi, we know. This is what we Pharisees know. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus as, Rabbi, we know, with truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born from above or again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And whatever else Nicodemus heard in that, surely he understood that Jesus was talking about him. The ruler of Israel, a man of the Pharisees, well-educated, accomplished, knowing the languages, the theology, the ethics, the religion, Jesus was talking about him, and Nicodemus is incensed. And it was as Nicodemus the interrogator, the Pharisee, not as Nicodemus a disciple who responds, how can he be born again? How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is belittling. And Jesus holds firm. He simply repeats himself. Truly, truly, I say to you. And now you is plural. Which I take to refer to Nicodemus and all the Pharisees. I'm saying this to all of you. Unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now you notice that Jesus here substitutes water and the spirit. Born of water and the spirit for born again. And then he adds this very incredible, this very important statement to explain to Nicodemus. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. You might want to underscore that. And then he rebuffs Nicodemus. He says to him, don't be shocked that I told you. You must be born again. Now you respond to me. You want to mock me and what I've said? How can you possibly? Don't marvel at this. Don't be shocked at what I said. Don't act as if you have never heard of this idea before. And when Nicodemus goes on a couple of verses later and protests later, more, how can these things be? Jesus rebukes him outright. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? See what Jesus is doing? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he's in a quandary. So what does Jesus do? He just makes it worse. 
He just makes it worse. Parenthetically, I'd say to you that it's probably the case that Jesus had in mind the prophets when he spoke to Nicodemus this way because the law came through Moses, but the verdict that Israel was utterly unable to keep the law, that that Israel utterly failed to keep the law, and that God himself, not the law, not any personal righteousness, but that God himself must save his people in spite of the law, in spite of their rebelliousness, that message, that verdict on Israel, that they must be saved apart from law in a very different way, that had come through the prophets. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, this is what the Lord had promised. This is probably, I think, where the language of water and spirit came from. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes And be careful to walk in my decrees. And Nicodemus should have known this. Now at this point, it's important not to get ahead of ourselves. Certainly not to get ahead of the story. Because if you are getting ahead of the story, you're likely to conclude that things really weren't going very well between Jesus and Nicodemus. But actually, the truth is that things were going great Because this is how a principled skeptic like Nicodemus comes to Christ. They're skeptical about Jesus because he doesn't fit in their assumptions. He doesn't fit within their their worldview. Not only what they've learned all their lives, but even what they've been teaching all of their lives about God, about reality, about the way things really are. This is the way it always begins. It does begin this way with principled skeptics. I mean, here comes Jesus out of nowhere, Nazareth, nowhere, teaching big ideas about God, drawing followers, doing miracles, or allegedly doing miracles. And then, of course, all of this is codified in a book, which is unlike any other book in the whole history of the world. We call it the Bible, and the portion of the book that it's in is called the New Testament. And what do the majority of skeptics do What do they do across history for the last 2,000 years? What do the majority of skeptics do with this Jesus? And the answer is, they try to cut him down to size, to fit within their expectations about how things are, about how things must be. So Jesus ends up being a charlatan or a teacher, a good teacher, or a social reformer, or if you're Muslim, ends up being a prophet. But then there are those skeptics who have been skeptical, like I've just described. But then, like Nicodemus, they come to some point where they can't quite bring themselves to leave it there anymore. That in spite of being a Pharisee or part of whatever group they're part of, having whatever elite status they happen to have, their minds become unsettled about Christ. And they can feel some compulsion to look into Christ themselves. And what they cannot understand 
at the time. What they cannot know at the time is that it's actually the Holy Spirit who's begun to draw them. They don't know that. They don't see the Spirit. They just feel these leaves rustling in them. They're feeling unsettled. That's what they feel. I'd like to say just a word this morning. That's really why here at Church of the Atonement, uh, we take anyone's interest in Christ seriously, no matter what your background, no matter what your status, no matter how hostile you may be at first. No. And it's why we have conversations with people that extend over long periods of time about Christ, to think through Jesus. Because we really do trust the Holy Spirit works. And we do believe that God has called us to enter into friendships with people with whom the Holy Spirit's working, as well as with people who are not. But that's why we do what we do in atonement. That's why we're here. It's a threatening journey to take. It is a threatening journey to take when you're unsettled in this way. It was threatening for Nicodemus. And it takes time. You know, it was three years. It was three Passovers before Nicodemus became a disciple of Jesus. We, he's only introduced to us in John 3. John reintroduces us to Nicodemus in chapter 7, where he actually warns, I mean in a critical way, as a criticism, he is warning his fellow Pharisees not to rush to a murderous judgment against Jesus. They haven't even heard him out. He's begun to hear him out. He's impressed. He's not committed, but he's impressed. And he thinks what these Pharisees are doing with Jesus, conspiring to have him, it's not right. So he warns them. And what do they do to him? They threaten to brand him a disciple of Christ. They say, you're not from Galilee too, are you? You'd think that'd back him off. It is long dangerous. It feels perilous anyway to come to Christ. But then in John 19, after Jesus is crucified and Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea receives Jesus' body to bury it in his tomb, who brings the 75 pounds of aloe and burial spices to embalm Jesus? Well, it's Nicodemus. Presumably he does this on Good Friday, not on Saturday. Even before the ladies arrive at the tomb on Sunday with their burial spices and so forth. We look at those women, they think, what a tremendous love they had for Jesus. What do you think it was that led Nicodemus to bring 75 pounds of aloe and spices to Joseph, to the tomb for Jesus? He'd become a disciple, but we know from John's gospel it took at least three Passovers Three years. It takes time. And I want to say to us as a church, as Christians, it's our responsibility to love the person who's going through that process of coming to faith in Christ. I don't think anyone accomplishes that without someone in their life in a very significant place because it is a dangerous journey. It feels like a dangerous journey. I remember how terrified I was for the three years I went between the time I first heard the gospel and the time I became a Christian. And the reason it feels so unsettling and it feels so insecure is because it involves adopting an entirely different view of the world than the world that you grew up with, that you were taught, and that you've taught others. It's a truer and more wonderful world view of the world, but it's a totally unsettling view of the world compared with what you believed and what you thought 
that you know. And it's as impossible for others to do this on their own, to go through this on their own, as it was for many of us. And they don't get to go. The recovering skeptics, they don't get to go to Jesus face to face. The Lord has appointed you, Christian, to love them and to honor the truth in their lives. And some of you today are probably in Nicodemus' place. I'd like to speak to you for a couple moments. It's stirring to know more about Christ. It does. It makes you cautious. And it's something I'm sure Nicodemus tried to put down for some period of time, but he just couldn't. So we see Nicodemus approaching Jesus. How? In the dark and alone. He doesn't want others to know what he's up to. He doesn't want them to know. He's second-guessing what he's been so strong and, and certain of. He feels he has a lot to lose, beginning with his reputation among his peers. They might turn on him. Yet he just had to know. He had to, be, had to settle this matter about who Jesus was. And perhaps, perhaps Nicodemus was hoping that he could somehow fit Jesus into his worldview and into his understanding of God and walk away and say, well, you know, Jesus, he's not such a big deal after all. But if that was what Nicodemus hoped for, Jesus totally swept that off the table at once. He made it clear that the true challenge that Nicodemus faced was much, much larger, which was to change his view of the world to accommodate Jesus, not to change his view or trim Jesus down to size to accommodate his worldview. Christ would not allow himself to be trimmed down. And the fact that he begins and says, truly I say to you, unless you're born from heaven, born from above, born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It makes that very, very clear. You cannot cut me down to fit. And here's the core. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, listen, reality is so much greater and so better than so much more wonderful than you ever conceived it to be. It doesn't mean everything you believe is wrong. Everything, it doesn't believe that at all. But it's so much greater and so much bigger than you ever conceived it to be. But here's the core idea. This is a radical thing that Jesus taught him to shift his worldview. Where his worldview is wrong. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And he said, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, flesh refers to our humanity in relation to, you know, mom and dad, Seth and Rachel for Pax. Our humanity in relation to Adam, ultimately. Spirit refers to our humanity in relation to God. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus simply this. And it's quite potent. He says, you could never have entered the world of humanity unless humanity was already part of you, Nicodemus. And in the same way, you can never enter the kingdom of God unless God is already a part of you, Nicodemus. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless the kingdom of God has already entered you, unless God has already begun to reign in your life. If you want to know eternal life, eternal life must enter into you. It must be part of your life in the here and now. This is the radical thing that Christ taught. It's a huge idea. It is a huge idea that what governs our destiny is not our, our biology, our humanity in that sense, but a true relationship with the living God now. 
And this is far more significant than your life, the life that you're living, though your life is very significant. This is far more significant than your death, that you will die, although your death will be very significant. And it's more significant than your life, and it is more significant than your death, because your life will be short, and your death is not God. Your death is not all-powerful. It does not determine your destiny. And I would say to those of you who may be like Nicodemus this morning, I would ask you, please be patient with Christians when they talk to you like this. They're, they're not really trying to throw you off. They're trying to point up the difference and, and put this in, 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 in a stark reality so you can really see the difference and deal with it. And we don't always present this very well. And sometimes we're really belligerent. And that is not of God. But this truth is of God. And it is what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. You know how it is. is so many people believe, they do believe, that when they die, there's nothing left. Everything's over. Why? Because their experience of day-to-day life is all that they know. So they believe there's nothing more to it. And because they believe there's nothing more to their life than that, they know nothing more. They are living without God. So of course they believe when they die, it's all over. There's nothing, of course. And philosophy conforms to this, and the modern you know, dictates of, of science, the fundamental pre-assumptions of science, they, they conform to this. Why? Because human beings are coming up with all this stuff, and this is their experience. This is the way they see reality. They see their life ending in death and conclude that death is absolute over their life. In essence, they conclude that death, really don't say it necessarily, but death is God. And Jesus says no. Jesus says as the flesh gives rise to flesh, what is of the spirit gives rise to spirit. It isn't just that what is of God belongs to God. It is that what is of God belongs with God. And that matter is settled now in this life. You can't enter then if it hasn't entered into you now. You can't know life then if you don't know life now. Isn't that radical? Isn't that an amazing thing? And to Nicodemus's protest then, which is essentially if this is necessary, if you're saying it's necessary, but how can these things even be? Jesus makes it very, very clear that the proof and the reality, the proof and the reality, the proof of the necessity, the reality of being born with God also is on him. It's on him. I mean, Jesus' answered Nicodemus is really, it's on me, Nicodemus. How can these things be? It's on me. I take responsibility. I take the responsibility to show you that these things are true. It is on me. It is not on you to prove it. It's on me. It's not on you to find it. It's on me to provide it. It's on me, Nicodemus. 
It depends on my being lifted up in a way, in a similar way to the way Moses lifted up the, lifted up the serpent in the, in the wilderness. So the people of Israel being stung by stakes, snakes to death and dying by these snake bites, and it was a judgment so that everybody who looked on that fiery serpent had eternal life. Well, in the same way, Nicodemus, I'm going to have to be lifted up. And when I am, those who believe in me will receive eternal life. They will be born again. It's the work of God. This is how it works. Now, he doesn't say anything more to Nicodemus as far as I can tell from the passage. That's my reading of the passage. That's it. He leaves Nicodemus. So how does Nicodemus leave? Is he in less of a quandary or more of a quandary? He's in more of a quandary. And more than ever before, that quandary is fixated. It is, it is focused on this man, Jesus. So what would Nicodemus do? Very naturally, if, if all this stuff was dumped on him, well, this is what he did. We know he followed Jesus closely. He wanted to learn more. And so we come to that seventh chapter of John's gospel where now Nicodemus, still a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees, one of the leaders, a man who has the authority to stand up and speak to them so that they listen, he will stand up and say, don't be so harsh with Jesus. Be careful that you don't just harm this man. You need to hear him out. You see, he's on his way. Those leaves are rustling. The limbs are beginning to move. He still does not understand what's happening, but he will. But it's only when the Son of Man has been lifted up that it will all come together for him. That's what these signs were all about. Giving sight to the blind and helping the deaf hear, helping the lame walk. These signs are about Jesus and how he came to give us the life that we all desperately need. And that it's in Christ. It's actually in him. And that until we're, we're born again, until spiritually we come into this new relationship with God, which is through Christ, we, we can't even know this life. We won't even be persuaded of it. So at this point, the Apostle John, I think, that's my reading of the text, the Apostle John kind of cuts in in verse 6, and he lets the reader know the end of the story, which he doesn't let uh, which Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus because Nicodemus could not possibly have fathomed him, but we can. This is the rest of the story. This is the answer to Nicodemus's quandary about Jesus, that God so loved the world that he has given his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the answer to every skeptic's quandary about Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the world. And for us as Christians, this is our high calling. To be that person that the Lord uses in the lives of others so that they also may be born from above. Let's pray together. Our Father, we love you and thank you for this <clears throat> opportunity to look at your word and study from the third chapter of John's gospel about Jesus and Nicodemus and I want to thank you for Nicodemus and your work in Nicodemus. Uh, you, <laughs> he risked his life for Jesus. He put himself out there. Lord, I pray that you'd be at work in every one of us Nicodemuses in this congregation this morning and that you'd be at work in every one of us disciples as well. That we could be 
to the Nicodemuses of our life and our world what Jesus was to this dear man, this very principled skeptic. We don't have to say it all. We don't have to tell everything we know. But but there is this magnificent change people have to go through. It will change the way they see everything in order to accommodate Christ, who is the truth and eternal life forever and ever. Amen.